You know, as we sit in the presence of God and we hear the word through the music and we hear the word through Brother Randy and through Brother Leslie and through the different testimonies that come forth, I'm always listening, what's the theme, Lord? <laughs> what are you speaking? What is, the, what is the message that I'm supposed to take out of this? Is, is there a certain pattern or direction that you're giving us? And Obviously, it's Mother's Day, and we wish all the mothers happy Mother's Day. I was thinking about motherhood this morning, and I was considering the seeming paradox that often true motherhood might seem to represent. That on the one hand, this influence in a child's life that represents boundaries, firmness, discipline, yes, my mother believed in discipline, is also the child's primary source of comfort, of tenderness, of nurturing, support, faith, etc., etc. And I think that, that gets you asking Brother, Brother Leslie's question or the question that God put to you about love. What, what kind of love is, is God's love? What does God's love look like and feel like? Then Brother Randy hit something there that, that I also want to touch on. He is in an unfamiliar setting where somebody comes up and says to him, I have a word from God for you. What does that do to his mindset? How does that prepare him for what's about to happen? And would you have been able to receive that miracle without that preparation of the heart that took place through those comments? In other words, if, if he had been sitting on the booth and eating the fried chicken or whatever it was, and the buddy next to him says, you know, Randy, I'm just going to tell you, you don't need those drugs anymore. I mean, God will be everything that those used to be for you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, ma'am. That would have been the same words. But would it have transformed his life? Would he have been able to say 40 years later that he never went back? That God set him free once and for all? And the answer, I would venture to say, is absolutely no chance. So you ask, okay, well then, what made this more or less effective and powerful in his life? We can see that Jesus and the apostles at times went into certain settings and spoke one word that had an effect on one that was utterly transformative and had an effect on another, well, had no effect on the other, rather. So how do we, 
How do we reconcile that? What, what, what's going on there? I remember when a sister called my mom when we were kids and asked her if she could help her find the reference for the scripture, familiarity breeds contempt. And my mom said, well, it's not a scripture, but it is the truth. <laughs> of course, my dad is taught in building Christian character and in other settings about a prophet has honor everywhere but in his hometown, among his own people. But I see a commonality between these two themes. And maybe even the third one of motherhood. You know, I, I remember a tragedy that I went through with, with my wife the year after we were married. We were young. It was the day before my 21st birthday. And as you all know, we lost our first baby. It was total surprise. Nothing pointed to it. It was devastating. That's not my point. Grief is not a one-time visit. It comes and goes and seems to have disappeared only to knock on the door in the middle of the night when you least expect it, when you're least prepared for it. And I've seen that in, in subsequent tragedies and losses that I've either experienced or that I've helped others with. It's like a wave that comes and recedes and comes back and sometimes with greater force and sometimes with lesser force, but it, it, there's this ebb and flow dynamic to grief. And I guess I, I discovered that our victory over that grief was not going to be a one-time decisive moment. And as a husband, I was grappling with my responsibility to not only handle the grief myself, but to help my wife handle the grief as her covering in Christ. And I think it was a growing spurt for all of us in every way. And I know that my family members, my brothers and sisters coming over and spending time with us and my father and my mother, they were with us every step of the way. My dad calling me, my mom visiting us, answering questions for us. So the body was there, but I personally felt my own responsibility um, to my wife, to my young wife, even though I was young myself. And in years, years later, it dawned on me, I was walking down, I was walking alone one night, and it dawned on me with, with some impact that we would not have survived that ordeal with love alone. And I say that in scare quotes and somewhat tongue-in-cheek, because I don't actually mean that, but let me put it like this, we would not have survived that with our view of what love was alone. Love had to come in together with a measure of authority. And when love combined with authority, the miracle was able to happen. But if uncoupled from authority, the love would prove insufficient. Now, I hope I'm scaring somebody because then you'll listen. But I mean that. 
And I believe that that is exactly why Brother Randy's word from this sister was effective. Because he did not receive it as merely another word from another person, randomly generated, or even a word from Scripture casually delivered. But somehow he was able to combine his faith with a sense of authority coming from God. God was speaking here. And the content of his word was loving, gracious, merciful, empowering. But if uncoupled from the sense of authority, it would not work. And I saw that in my own relationship with my wife. I I discovered that my authority in her life had to bring some parameter, some boundary where if she didn't submit to me, even in how to respond to the grief, then the grief would have overwhelmed her. Is that wrong to say, honey? And, and so what she needed from me was love. What she needed from me was the ultimate kind of love. But there is a reason our parents are not our peers. There is a reason that those tasked with loving us most have complete authority over our existence. And yet we, we have this vision of love that wants to separate authority from love. We, we want to parse these two, two things apart. And I believe that that is the sure paved pathway to disappointment, frustration, fruitlessness, and the inability to ever change again. You cannot separate the fear of God from the grace of God, the love of God from the authority of God. It's all a package deal. Amen. How many times have we seen that the same gift would be effective over here and ineffective over there. What's the difference? What's the difference? Well, in one place, we've lost all regard for it. We cannot perceive it as the Word of God. It is too common. It is too familiar. We know it too well. And in the other place our heart still trembles. Amen. My mom has given her testimony throughout the years and she's described how on her first visit to the church when she was 19 years old, she was in in a meeting where the, the pastor's wife began to sing and the man next to her began to weep before anything had been said or done. He began to weep, and then the the pastor's wife begins to sing, and this move of God is just happening, and she doesn't understand it. The 13 people who are with her in the same group, they don't understand it. People are coming to repentance. All kinds of things are happening, and pretty soon she finds herself at the front, and somebody is praying for her, and 
encouraging or coaching her to call on Jesus and she calls out, oh Christ. And then somebody says to her, that gentleman who was the pastor is going to come over here and he's going to pray for you. And when he prays for you, God's going to fill you with his spirit. Now the same kind of preparation happened in that conversation as happened to you. And sure enough, she didn't know what it meant to be filled in the Spirit. She'd been raised nominally a Lutheran. She didn't understand what Pentecostalism was. She didn't know what speaking in tongues was. Never heard of it, never experienced it, never attempted anything of the kind. My dad thought Pentecostals were an Indian tribe in New Mexico. <laughs> but sure enough, she's up there praying this first tentative prayers from the heart. And this gentleman comes over and starts to pray for her. And she said she felt like hot oil went from the top of her head to the bottom of her feet. And she was filled with the Holy Spirit and couldn't speak her normal language. Nobody had explained that to her, prepared her for that. Somebody next to her said, oh, praise God, she'll never speak English again. And she freaked out and clapped her hand over her mouth. <laughs> and then he invited her to be baptized and told her, this very day, God is going to wash your sins away as far as the east is from the west, and he will remember them no more. And she never went back, never dabbled, never tempted, never played with it. It was done. It was over because she had encountered God. But there were people in the same church raised under the same pastor who came to her bewildered Asking, why did you come here? What do you see here? This is the story of the family of Eli. He's a priest to the people, but a joke to his own sons. This is the story of Samuel. <laughs> He's the Lord's anointed, and not a word from his mouth falls to the ground. Except his own sons treat him like a joke. This is the story of David. One of the largest contributors to the Old Testament. And yet his sons cannot treat him that way. This is the story of how grace is uncoupled from authority. Of how love is disconnected from authority and loses its power in our lives. How do we get it back? How do we get it back? How do we wake up one day and realize that somewhere along the way we lost the fear of God that is our ability to depart from evil, that is our grace to turn and even receive love? How do we get it back? How do we wake ourselves up. Is it Isaiah 64 who says, who is it among my people who will stir themselves? Amen. Who will arouse themselves? How do we get it back? You see, in our own tragedy, I firmly believe that authority without love would have proven utterly and instantly fruitless. And I believe that categorically. 
I preached that in November of 2018 and many times since. All legitimate authority in the body of Christ, in the kingdom of God, derives from love. A mother has the right and even the the mandate, the requirement, the prerogative to guide a child's life because she carried him for nine months, suffered under his growth, nursed him, fed him, washed him, clothed him, loved him, cradled him, comforted him. And all this care gives her the right to paddle his bottom when he misbehaves. Amen? And it gives her the right to make requirements of him that no other human being has the right to make. But if all that comfort and all that coddling and all that love doesn't turn into, doesn't combine, let me say, with authority, then we have this form of permissive parenting that ultimately rises up to kill and mock the very thing that gave it life. Thank you, Lord. And so Paul also writes the Thessalonians and he says, I was with you as a mother with her nursing child, so I took care of you and loved you. Next few verses he says, I was with you as a father tenderly caring for his children. But then he also, in the same, to the same church, he says, We praise God that when you received our word, you received it not as the word of men, but as it was in truth the word of God that is able to perform its mighty work in you who believe. Could their word have performed a mighty effect if they hadn't believed? So what happens when you lose that? What happens when you cannot receive it as the word of grace? What happens when God's in one category and the church is in another? Or God's in one category and your husband or your mother or your your pastor is in another category? How do you get that back? I I would say it's a two-sided thing for sure. We love him because he first loved us. But it may also be just a one-sided thing. It's a two-sided equation, but it may be a one-sided problem. Both sides have got to do some examination. Somebody tell me, somebody literally tell me, how do you get it back? If there was a time in your life when hearing a word such as you've heard in the last year would have utterly changed the course of your future, but now it doesn't, I would submit to you that if you don't recover that, you're lost and you will remain lost. You've got to change your situation. You've got to change your church. You've got to do something or you've got to change your heart to get it back. Because Jesus could not perform many mighty works in his hometown of Nazareth because of their unbelief. And he told them, you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. When did they quote that proverb to him? When he was on the cross. You have saved others, save yourself. 
they said. Somebody, anybody, how do you get it back? Repentance. Amen. I agree. What is repentance and what does it concretely do to get, get you back? How does it undo the problem? Anybody else? Humility. Amen. That starts to hint at what the problem is, doesn't it? Let me ask you this question. Do you lose your honor for them in a void? Or do you lose it because it's been replaced? Does one day, one day you just, you're walking along and all of a sudden, whoosh, the honor just left my heart. Where is it? I don't know what happened to it. No, I'm going to think of it more like this. You only have a certain amount of honor in your heart. You only have a certain amount of bandwidth to devote toward uh, honor. And if it's lost from here, it's because it's posited somewhere else. What I'm suggesting and what you're getting at is that a loss of honor over here always correlates to an increase of honor right here. And that's the only way, that's the only hope of getting it back. You can't undo the past. You've got to recognize that something has been stolen from God and given to self. And only when it is loosed from self can it be given back to God. Can anybody think of any scriptures that, that substantiate this? This idea that a loss of honor in God is because of an honor in self. A loss of obedience to God is because of an obedience to self. A willingness to deny Him is because of an unwillingness to deny me. Anybody? When Samuel um, rebuked Saul and said, you once were small in your own eyes. Amen. Samuel rebuked Saul, the sisters pointing out, because he refused to stay in his place in submission to Samuel, even though he was king. And he broke the order of God, but Samuel describes why. He says, when you were small in your own eyes, God made you ruler over all the people. But see, now he has taken the kingdom from you and given it to another. When Saul disobeyed Samuel and Samuel asked, why have you done this? He said, what is this sound of sheep that I hear in my ears? What did Saul say? Saul said, well, I feared the people. He cast it as a panic, as a desire to just be a good man to the people. But the Bible tells us actually just prior to that why he had actually done it. What was his real motive? It says Saul intended to make a name for himself. <laughs> and he was going to set up a monument to himself. But in his own mind, that's not why he did it. He just did it because he was scared. You understand, Samuel, sometimes people can get scared. Thank you, Jesus. Any other scriptures that suggest that a loss of honor or a loss of obedience or a willingness to deny Christ 
is based in placing all those attributes in the wrong place, namely right here in me. Any other scriptures? Yes. In the book of Malachi, the, the theme of the whole book is this, what you're talking about. Amen. Amen. So give me the theme in a, in a sentence. <clears throat> Please. If a son honors his father and a servant his master, then if I'm your father, where is my honor? Amen. It says, and people say, how did we rob you? He says, in tithes and offerings. Well, where is their money going? Their paneled houses. So you can't, there's not just this lack of honor. There's not just this lack of faith. Amen. We don't just spring a leak and lose all our faith one day. I don't buy that. I believe faith is a constant currency in the heart, and it's invested somewhere. Either in the divine word of your own viewpoint and perspective, or in the divine word that you shall know that sets you free. Amen. So the only way to get it back is to take it from where you put it and give it back to where it belongs. That's why the Apostle Paul could write the Romans and say that the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven on those who do not obey the truth. But that's not where he ends. What's the next sentence? But who obey unrighteousness? You're not going to have, there's no neutral ground here. That's why Jesus said, he who is not for me is against me. He who is not gathering with is scattering abroad. But he also said, he who is not against me is for me. <laughs> there's just no interstitial space. There's just no neutral ground. There's nothing. You've got to be all this way or all that way. The contradictory viewpoints cannot coexist in the mind. And so the story that Sister Monica read of the Pharisee versus the woman with the alabaster jar, the only thing that enabled her to recognize and receive the miracle that was in the room that day was that her own life had been so pulverized that nothing was left invested in self. Nothing was left protecting self. Nothing was left pursuing self and its ambitions. She was free. Not just free in the sense of I have no more hope, but I'm no longer trying through all the machinations and mechanisms of my flesh I can choose God's way now wholeheartedly. In the Talmud, the teachers of the law say that if God were to come down and walk upon the earth and come to them and speak to them words, new words from the Most High, they would say to him, God's word has already been perfected in the law of Moses that we have learned and studied. They would reject, in their own words, they preclude the idea of incarnation 
And they say that if God ever incarnated himself, you know, if that were ever to happen in some make-believe world, they would reject him on this basis. Last year I was reading a section in the Talmud and I got chills down my spine as I read their reference, their only reference to Jesus. It says, and there was a man called Yeshua who went about performing many miracles and magical signs. But he was put to death according to the law of Moses for his wicked sorcery. Okay, so anything that pops out of the pages of something I can control, that pull, comes out of the principles that we've all ironed out and speaks to me face to face and turns over the tables in the temple and confronts me with a presentational expression of the authority of God, that's got to be the devil. That's got to be sorcery, which is channeling demonic power into the world, is what they believe sorcery was. So they killed him under the law of Moses for practicing sorcery. Huh. Because it's just absolutely outside the realm of possibility that this could be the work of God. Most people today who adopt a hard stance of cessationism, that all the gifts of the Spirit have ceased, is that really where they stop, or do most of them... At least most of the prominent teachers end up saying that it is the devil. The devil that they don't believe works in the world anymore. They have found the one place where he must be working. <laughs> Do you understand? I mean, because all of that has ceased. We don't need that anymore. We just quote scripture, right? But they have found, and they say it is the work of the devil. Amen. Why is there such an animosity? Why is there such a defensiveness? Remember that when Jesus spoke in Nazareth when they rejected him, they compared him to the Pharisees and the scribes. And they said he does not speak as the, the Pharisees and scribes. How did he speak? He spoke like the sister spoke to you, Brother Randy. He spoke like this was a miracle that could actually happen. He spoke as one having authority. Miracles happen when God speaks as one having authority. And the church stays the flat, insipid pancake that it is when she waters it all down to be a big, blase nothing. No pressure, no obligation to repent. Just a suggestion that's awfully sweet, devoid of power. I do not want to be surprised in eternity to discover all of the visitations from God that I forfeited while begging for a visitation from God. I do not want to be thunderstruck. Huh? Really? I've shared from it many times before, but I have to touch on it again here for the sake of the... to bring the point home. I shared it even in a Sunday meeting not too long ago. Why did Jesus say that John the Baptist was Elijah who was to come if you were willing to believe it. Why did he say that? 
as if our willingness changed who he was or who he wasn't in relation to us. Is that possible? Is it possible that what's inside is changing my universe, rearranging my possibilities? Amen. Is it possible that there's a sense in which I can honestly say, John the Baptist never came simply because I was never willing to believe it? God, help us. Help us to look at those places in our lives where we have grown accustomed to the miracle that would change us. Help us to view those places where the word of love and the word of promise has lost the authority of God. That's where we're stuck. That's where we can't budge. That's where we can't change. You know, God in His mercy can do something. He can, he can crush our pride for us. I read a I read this paper that my dad had sent me years ago and it said, it, the title was How to Do Community. Which kind of, I thought he must be tongue-in-cheek like the one that he sent us how to, how to Start a Community Guaranteed to Fail. So I saw this title that was so blunt and I said, well, he must have been teasing or being sarcastic. So I opened it up and I began to read it. And the first paragraph he says, how to do community. Find a man full of pride with some perhaps notable gifts and an adequate intelligence. Someone who can't tolerate submission, bristles against authority, and is absolutely confident in his own worldview. I'm like, okay. And he says, and then pulverize him with the devastation of one loss after another. With the confrontation of the inadequacy of his own abilities to love. Pulverize him with the betrayal of friends, with the death of loved ones, with the loss of dreams, with disillusionment in society, and just keep pulverizing him until he is a puddle and has lost all hope for his future, for his own sanity. And then introduce him to the gentle grace of God in a powerful experience with the Holy Spirit. And he carries on for about seven paragraphs. That's all we're missing. That's all we're missing. If we could see behind every fear, behind every suspicion, behind every loss of faith, if we could just see the strength of our own flesh, then we could change this. We could catapult ourselves out of the room of God's silence 
and into the sanctuary where we can declare, I have seen him in his sanctuary, beheld his power and his glory. We could eject ourselves from the riverbanks where we heard only thunder into the secret place of the Most High where the secrets of our hearts were revealed and we fell on our face and knew that God was among his people of a truth. All that has to happen is we have to realize that our trust is not lost, it's misplaced. Our faith is not dissipated, it's misplaced. Our honor is not lost, it's misplaced. And if it's placed in the wrong direction, there's the cause of all of our frustration. Amen. And if we will be small, he's still there. Thank you, Jesus. He's still speaking. He's still loving. He's still declaring miracles, revealing truth that can set us free. You know, I go back to, I go back to, to that tragedy that Beck and I suffered 16 years ago. And I'll say that there was something else that happened. Yes, we teetered on the rim of self-pity. Yes, we asked the questions about fairness and justice and equity. But something else happened. In the pain, in the devastation, or I might say because of the pain, because of the devastation, the world became alive with the voice of God. Every meeting, every card, every text message, every song pounded home. I love you. I'm for you. I'm with you. I haven't left you. I haven't forsaken you. There's still a purpose. Keep your eyes on me. We'll get through this. This is not the end. This is but the beginning. I am your God. I will not leave you. Amen. I will hold you. I will guide you by the right hand. And I can see Sister Kathy and Sister Missy and my mom and so many who have gone through those reductions, they know exactly what I'm speaking about. My dad says that life will reduce you, but there are the reductions of death in its inexorable march to steal, kill, and destroy. And there are the reductions of love that we choose to engage in, where we choose to let go. Amen. Where we say, this isn't a theft from God. This isn't a theft of God from me. This is a gift. This is a sacrifice. This is a votive offering. This is what I choose to give.
you, Lord God. Thank you, Jesus God. Hallelujah. Amen. God. Don't let don't let the devil make you feel cornered. Don't let him back you against the wall. That's not God. Don't let him funnel you into a squeeze chute where you grudgingly give up. That's not God. You can walk away. You can have it your way. That's God, the freedom. The freedom to choose, not the freedom to choose the consequences of those choices, but the freedom to choose your course. And God is saying, will you give it up? <laughs> will you freely give it up? And will you take responsibility for the hopelessness you battle? Thank you, Jesus. I remember saying to Rebecca sometimes, honey, let's draw a line right now. God has answered this. We're going to agree right now, we're never asking this question again. Hallelujah. Because it's settled right now, but when I get intoxicated, when I start drinking the bitter cup of my sorrows or my self pity, my brain won't be clear enough to remember what God spoke, and I'll be repeating the same garbage that he already delivered me from. I remember saying, sitting in that trailer, sitting across from her and saying, can we agree right now we're never going to ask this question again? In Jesus' name, we're never asking this question again. Okay, we agreed. And then, sure enough, the question came back up. And the authority of God said, wait. We agreed we would never ask this question again. We put this in God's hands. Let's put it back. I'm not going there. Let's not go there. And the authority of God's love kept us from the precipice of the abyss where the devil wanted to take us. If God is speaking to you today, you need to make a commitment that you know you're going to want to break. Make a commitment that is unbreakable so that when you get to the edge and you just want to jump off, you say, no, this is why I made the commitment in my right mind when it was clear, when the presence and the grace and the faith and the love of God was there, I made a commitment, I'm not going back. And hang on to that. Don't try to re-reason it. Just hang on to it. God gave you the grace to make the decision. Hold to the decision. Hold fast to your confession, firm to the end, for he who promised is faithful. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we take responsibility, Jesus. God, we want you to be powerful in our lives. We don't want you to accommodate our unbelief. We don't want you to coexist with our honor and self and our faith and our own ambitions and pride. God, we... We want it to be mutually exclusive. We want you to be Lord of Lords and King of Kings, Jesus. Give us the grace, God. Give us the grace, Lord, to accept your love, to accept your power in the authority of your truth. Amen. Give us the grace to fasten ourselves with unmovable commitments that can hold us until we become strong by your grace. 
in the path that you have given us. In Jesus' name. press 